Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is July 18th. On this day in 1940, delegates from the Democratic National Convention meeting in Chicago nominated Franklin Delano Roosevelt to an unprecedented third presidential term. A two-term president inserted in the U.S. Constitution as a 22nd Amendment after Roosevelt's death in the fourth month of his fourth term had been established by President George Washington when he declined to seek a third term in 1796. In a 3,500-word acceptance address delivered after midnight, Roosevelt said, It is with a very full heart that I speak tonight. I must confess that I do so with mixed feelings, because I find myself, as almost everyone does sooner or later in his lifetime, in a conflict between deep personal desire for retirement on the one hand, and that quiet, invisible thing called conscience on the other. World War II was in its first year, and the threat of a direct U.S. involvement in the struggle, he added, caused him to run. As FDR put it, I am complimented by the honor you have done me, but I know you will understand the spirit in which I say that no call of party alone would prevail upon me to accept re-election to the presidency. The real decision to be made in these circumstances is not the acceptance of a nomination, but rather an ultimate willingness to serve if chosen by the electorate of the United States. At stake, FDR said, was the continuance of civilization as we know it versus the ultimate destruction of all that we have held dear, religion against godlessness, the ideal of justice against the practice of force, moral decency versus the firing squad, courage to speak out and to act versus the false lullaby of appeasement. Roosevelt sought to position himself as a president grappling with a European war and above the political fray. Nonetheless, He needed to sweep aside challenges from James Farley of New York, the U.S. Postmaster General, and from Vice President John Nance Garner. Farley also chaired the Democratic National Committee and was the party's patronage guru. Before they came to a less amiable parting over the third term issue, Farley was chiefly responsible for having cobbled together the New Deal coalition of urban Catholics, labor unions, African Americans, and farmers, which, when added to the Solid South, first propelled FDR to the presidency in 1932. Garner was a Texas conservative who had turned against Roosevelt in his second term, opposing his liberal economic and social policies. As a new running mate, Roosevelt chose Henry A. Wallace of Iowa, his agricultural secretary and a diehard liberal. When conservatives objected, FDR called their bluff by making it known that without Wallace on the ticket, he would decline to be nominated. Roosevelt's remaining years in office would be consumed by World War II, which the United States entered on December 8th of 1941, and which ended in 1945, shortly after his death. And then during the night, of July 18th, 64 AD, fire broke out in the merchant area of the city of Rome. Fanned by summer winds, the flames quickly spread through the dry wooden structures of the imperial city. Soon the fire took a life of its own, consuming all in its path for six days and seven nights. When the conflagration finally ran its course, it left 70% of the city in smoldering ruins. Rumors soon arose, accusing the Emperor Nero of ordering the torching of the city and standing on the summit of Palatine, playing his lyre as flames devoured the world around him. 
These rumors have never been confirmed. In fact, Nero rushed to Rome from his palace in Antium and ran about the city all the first night without his guards directing efforts to quell the blaze. But the rumors persisted, and the emperor looked for a scapegoat. He found it in the Christians. At the time, a rather obscure religious sect with a small following in the city. To appease the masses, Nero literally had his victims fed to the lions during giant spectacles held in the city's remaining amphitheater. From the ashes of the fire rose a more spectacular Rome, a city made of marble and stone with wide streets, pedestrian arcades, and ample supplies of water to quell any future blaze. The debris from the fire was used to fill the malaria-ridden marshes that had plagued the city for generations. The historian Tacitus was born in the year 56 or 57, probably in Rome. He was in Rome during the Great Fire. During his lifetime, he wrote a number of histories chronicling the reigns of the early emperors. The following eyewitness account comes from his final work, The Annals, written around the year 116. Now started the most terrible and destructive fire which Rome had ever experienced. It began in the circus, where it adjoins the Palatine and Cilian hills, breaking out in shops selling inflammable goods. And fanned by the wind, the conflagration instantly grew and swept the whole length of the circus. There were no walled mansions or temples or any other obstructions which could arrest it. First the fire swept violently over the level spaces, then it climbed the hills, but returned to ravage the lower ground again. It outstripped every countermeasure. The ancient city's narrow winding streets and irregular blocks encouraged its progress. Terrified, shrieking women, helpless old and young, people intent on their own safety, people unselfishly supporting invalids or waiting for them, fugitives and lingerers alike, all heightened the confusion. When people looked back, menacing flames sprang up before them or outflanked them. When they escaped to a neighboring quarter, the fire followed. Even districts believed remote proved to be involved. Finally, with no idea where or what to flee, they crowded on the country roads or lay in the fields. Some who had lost everything, even their food for the day, could have escaped but preferred to die. So did others, who had failed to rescue their loved ones. Nobody dared fight the flames. Attempts to do so were prevented by menacing gangs. Torches, too, were openly thrown in by men crying that they had acted under orders, perhaps they had received orders, or they may have just wanted to plunder unhampered. Nero was at Antium. He returned to the city only when the fire was approaching the mansion he had built to link the gardens of Messinus to Palatine. The flames could not be prevented from overwhelming the whole of the Palatine, including his palace. Nevertheless, for the relief of the homeless, fugitive masses, he threw open the field of Mars, including Agrippa's public buildings and even his own gardens. Nero also constructed emergency accommodation for the destitute multitude. Food was brought in from Ostia and neighboring towns, and the price of corn was cut to less than quarter sesterns a pound. Yet these measures, for all their popular character, earned no gratitude, for a rumor had spread that while the city was burning, Nero had gone to his private stage and, comparing modern calamities with the ancient, had sung of the destruction of Troy. By the sixth day, enormous demolitions had confronted the raging flames with bare ground and open sky, and the fire was finally stamped out at the foot of Esquiline Hill. But before panic had subsided or hope revived, flames broke out again in the more open regions of the city. Here there were few ca- fewer casualties, but the destruction of temples and pleasure arcades was even worse. This new conflagration caused additional ill-feeling because it was started on Tilaginius's estate in the Emilian district, for people believed Nero was ambitious to found a new city to be called after himself. Of Rome's 14 districts, only four remained intact. Three were leveled to the ground, 
The other seven were reduced to a few scorched and mangled ruins. And then finally, during the French Revolution, Commodore John Paul Jones, the great naval leader of the American Revolution, died in Paris at the age of 45. Lacking official status and without financial security, Jones died alone in his apartment on July 18th of 1792. An admiring French friend arranged for his funeral and provided for a handsome lead coffin. John Paul Jones was buried in the St. Louis Cemetery on the property of the French royal family. Four years later, France's revolutionary government sold the property and the cemetery was forgotten. Over a century later, a search began to find the body of John Paul Jones for the purpose of returning his remains to the United States. The American ambassador to France, General Horace Potter, personally led the research to relocate the forgotten cemetery, provided the funds to excavate the casket, and coordinated the efforts to repatriate the mortal remains of the great naval hero. Correspondence, antique maps, and other records of the French National Library and Archives provided Ambassador Porter the information which helped in the discovery of the built-over cemetery. After weeks of tunneling through basement walls and streets, the casket of Jones was found and disinterred. Remarkably, his corpse, which had been wrapped in winding cloth and placed in straw and alcohol in a tightly sealed lead casket, was nearly perfectly preserved. He was taken to the University of Paris, where a complete autopsy was performed. There, the head of the corpse was compared to the sculptural portrait bust of Jones, executed in 1780 by John, Jean Antoine Houdon, who had taken a plaster impression directly from his subject's head. The autopsy and forensic study proved conclusively that the body was John Paul Jones. He had died of the kidney ailment nephritis complicated by pneumonia. Following an impressive parade, a religious service in Paris, and a special train arranged by the French government to the port of Cherbourg, the remains of John Paul Jones were transferred to the USS Brooklyn flagship of a special naval squadron sent by President Theodore Roosevelt to bring Jones home to his country of fond election, and to the nation for which he immeasurably helped gain independence. On July 24, 1905, the naval tug Standish carried the casket ashore at Annapolis, Maryland, for placement in a temporary vault across the street from the new U.S. Naval Academy Chapel, which was under construction. On April 24, 1906, elaborate and impressive ceremonies in commemoration of John Paul Jones were held in Dalgreen Hall in the new Naval Academy Armory. Incidentally, this is the anniversary of the battle between Jones's Ranger and his HMS Drake, fought in the Irish Sea in 1778 and had been the first major naval battle fought under the newly adopted Star and Stripe flag and resulted in Jones' capture of an important warship in Great Britain's home waters. President Roosevelt, Ambassador Porter, Admiral George Dewey, and many other dignitaries attended the ceremonies. France sent an entire naval fleet up the Chesapeake Bay to mark the occasion. Afterwards, the casket of John Paul Jones was placed in the Academy Bancroft Hall to await completion of his permanent tomb in the new Naval Academy Chapel. Jones was bid to rest in the crypt in the Naval Academy Chapel on January 26, 1913. The crypt was designed by Bow Arts architect Whitney Warren in the 21-ton sarcophagus and surrounding columns of black and white Royal Pyrenees marble were the work of sculptor Sylvain Celeris. The sarcophagus is supported by bronze dolphins and is embellished with cast garlands of bronze sea plants. Inscribed and set in brass letters around the base of the tomb are the names of the Continental Navy ships commanded by John Paul Jones to the American Revolution. Providence, Alfred, Ranger, Bonham, Richard, Serapis, Alliance, and Ariel. American national ensigns, flags, and Union Jacks are placed between the marble columns. Set in brass on the marble floor at the head of the sarcophagus is the inscription, 
Important historic objects related to Jones's life and naval career are exhibited in riches, niches around the periphery of the circular space. Visitors today to the Naval Academy can see the original marble copy of the Howden portrait bust, the gold medal awarded to Jones by the Congress in 1787, the gold-hilted presentation sword given by Louis the 16th of France, and Jones commissioned as Captain Continental U.S. Navy, signed by John Hancock. Here, too, is a plaque to Ambassador Porter, who was responsible for repatriating this great naval leader. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com FDR nominated for third term at Politico.com Nero's Rome burned at EyewitnessToHistory.com and naval hero John Paul Jones at USNA.edu The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.